Yes, hi. Good afternoon, everyone on the East Coast. Good morning if you're on the uh, West Coast, and good evening if you're in Europe or in Asia. We actually have uh, participants from a number of different countries today. Anyway, it's a new year, and it's a new uh, Tosca 3030, the January Tosca 3030. I thought we would talk today a little bit about Section 21 petitions. Uh, and why did I pick that topic for today's 3030? Well, there was a very interesting district court case that came out in mid-December. Uh, it's called a fluoridation case. Uh, you may have heard about it. Uh, we're going to talk about that at some length uh, uh, during this 3030. There's an excellent article about it in Inside EPA a week ago. So if you do get Inside EPA, uh, you might want to check that out. Uh, but there's something interesting about uh, uh, Section 21 petitions and the new TOSCA. You know, when I thought about the new TOSCA, I had a couple of reactions. The first reaction, I said, well, gee whiz, finally, EPA is going to be able to do something about existing chemicals. And that's probably true. I mean, as you know, there's a revamp section four, revamp section six. And then the second thought I had was, well, that probably means that we'll see a lot more section 21 petitions. And that's my prediction. I think uh, that's probably going to play out. And the, uh, the recent district court case, the fluoridation case, I think uh, lays credence to that prediction. Uh, this slide with my, um, with my bio. Yeah, so I'm Herbert Stryker. Next one. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Eric Godding. Eric is a litigator, environmental litigator. He has uh, participated in a few Tosca 3030s before. And he's going to talk at length about the district court case. But first, let's talk about Section 21 generally. So what is Section 21? Well, it's a part of TSCA towards the end, uh, and it allows any person uh, to petition EPA to start a uh, proceeding to issue a rule, amend a rule, or repeal a rule or order under various enumerated sections of TSCA. The specific, specific sections of TSCA are Section 4, that's the test rules, or now includes test orders. Section 6, that's the ban rules, but also risk management measures. Anything going from uh, uh, labeling all the way to bans. Uh, Section 8 are the information gathering rules. Uh, in particular, uh, the rules would be issued under Section 8A. These are the famous pair rules that you may be familiar with. It also includes, interestingly enough, the new chemical provisions, Section 5E, which are the uh, consent orders, and Section 5F, which are the orders banning new chemicals uh, that pose a significant risk. So under the Section 21 petition process, EPA is required to grant or deny a petition within 90 days. Now, by the way, the grant or, or, or would be to initiate a proceeding. It doesn't mean that EPA will actually issue a ban rule or issue a testing rule or issue an information gathering rule, but the decision that EPA has to make within 90 days is whether to grant uh, a petition to initiate an appropriate proceeding. EPA has 90 days very tight time frame. Uh, if EPA grants a petition, then EPA must promptly commence an appropriate proceeding uh, under Section 4 or 6 or 8 or 5E or 5. If EPA denies the petition, then the reasons for denial must be published in the Federal Register, and the petitioner can go to court. Very, very importantly, uh, the petitioner may bring an action in the U.S. District Court, generally where the petitioner resides, uh, if EPA either denies the petition or EPA fails to act within the 90-day period. 
And under the old Tosca, there were a fair number of Section 21 petitions. We'll talk about some of them. There were only a few court cases, um, and a couple of famous ones, but only a few court cases. Next slide, please. So a couple of things about the court's review of the Section 21 petition. The court can undertake a de novo review, so they can look at the petition and the facts that are asserted and make their own decision as to whether the petitioner has provided uh, substantial grounds to support the petition. The standard review is that the petitioner must show by preponderance of the evidence, which means more than 50%, more likely than not, that there are sufficient facts to justify rulemaking under the relevant statutory standing. So, for example, if it's a Section 6 petition to initiate Section 6 rulemaking, then the petitioner must show uh, that the chemical uh, uh, will present an unreasonable risk to healthy environment. Section 4 position, then the petitioner must show uh, that there's insufficient information about the chemical and the, and the chemical is produced in sufficient volume and there's significant exposure to justify uh, a Section 4 test rule. Uh, interestingly, the court actually can also decide uh, that EPA can defer or delay its issuance of the rule if there are more important things that EPA is doing and, it doesn't, and EPA doesn't have sufficient resources uh, to take the action sought by the petitioner within the time frame contemplated. And if the, if the petitioner prevails, they may get uh, be awarded costs and attorney fees. Next slide. So who brings Section 21 petitions? Well, there have been a fair number under the old rule, old TOSCA. Uh, they're usually brought by environmental groups, um, and they generally seek Section 6 bans, Section 4 test rules, and Section 8A information gathering rules or pair rules. There's some examples. They're usually very high profile issues that are the subject of uh, Section 21 petitions. Some of the petitions that were lodged in the past, uh, there was a petition uh, to uh, require testing of the effects of carbon uh, dioxide on ocean certification. Uh, there was a petition to ask EPA to set up a mercury inventory and require uh, reporting on the manufacture, import, and use of mercury under Section 6A. There was a petition at one time for EPA to regulate the disposal of PVC products. Uh, you know, very, very famous petition to require EPA to ban uh, uh, lead in, uh, in shot and in bullets. Uh, that was heavily litigated. Um, and ultimately, the court decided uh, that the uh, exemption uh, from the scope of TOSCA for guns and ammunition uh, actually applied to lead shot and bullets. So it's actually rather interesting. That was a rather interesting one, very high profile. Uh, there was a very high profile petition uh, to require EPA to, to establish a uh, pair rule for uh, fracking chemicals. That was granted by EPA, interestingly enough, and EPA did initiate a uh, proceeding. They had a proposed rule, and um, that went on hold under the uh, Trump administration. So that seems to have sort of disappeared uh, from the regulatory agenda. But that petition at least was granted. There was also a petition to ban formaldehyde and press wood. You can find a catalog and, and a summary of the various petitions that were submitted under Section 21 in the past in this link. And we will be providing a copy of the um, presentation on our website as well as a recording 
of the uh, of the uh, Tasca 3030 webinar. Next slide. So, if you if you sort of look at the history of Section 21 petitions on the old Tosca, there are a couple of things that that you, one would note. First is the ones that asked for bans or the ones that asked for test, test rules were rarely, if ever, granted by EPA. Um, the petitions that asked for information gathering rules on the repair uh, had had better success. I already mentioned the hydraulic fracking uh, petition, uh, and there was also a petition for the nanomaterials, which I guess was granted, and there actually is a rule on nanomaterials that issued as a result of that. So the sort of general rule of thumb was that Section 21 petitions are fine on the old Tosca, but if you were asking EPA to do something under Section 6, not likely to happen. If you're asking to do something on Section 4, also probably not likely to happen. And so the only place where you could actually get some mileage uh, was when you asked EPA to, to issue an information rule. Now, why was that? Well, you may have some various thoughts about that. My personal view is since EPA never granted Section 6 petitions on the old Tosca, uh, you know, after the uh, Sixth Circuit, Fifth Circuit, I guess it was, Fifth Circuit uh, uh, rolled back, vacated their asbestos rule, um, and then EPA did try to have a couple of uh, Section 6 rules for lead and I think one other chemical, maybe mercury, uh, without much success. EPA under the old task had never granted Section 6, but uh, engaged in Section 6 rulemaking. So asking EPA to initiate a Section 6 rule was probably not going to be successful. There are also a fairly uh, limited number of test rules that were issued on the old TOSCA, um, no more than 40. Uh, usually because of ITC nominations, and so asking, and there would, and uh, Section 4 rule on the old Tosca is a fairly uh, extensive exercise. There's a lot of uh, a lot of homework that EPA has to do to support that rulemaking, and so asking EPA to engage in a Section 4 rule under uh, Section 21 is probably also was not going to be successful. So, has a new Tosca changed anything? Well, it, you know, it, I think we do think it, it has. Uh, we think that uh, the new Tosca, for a variety of reasons, uh, makes it more likely uh, that Section 21 petitions are going to prevail. Why is that? Well, unlike the old days, unlike the old Tosca, EPA is now in the business of promulgating Section 6 rules. There's a whole machinery to promulgate Section 6 rules. And so the reluctance, that arguably EPA may have had in the past in granting a Section 6 uh, petition to initiate Section 6 rulemaking is probably no longer present on the new Tosca. Now, with respect to test rules, well, Section 4 allows EPA now to issue orders, shortcuts, streamlined. Um, and so asking EPA to, to require testing uh, is probably going to have uh, an easier task on the new Tosca uh, than it was under the old Tosca. Um, I think you may also see some uh, some uh, some Section 21 petitions asking EPA to issue Section 5e orders. Um, there's a an arguably a reduced threshold for the issuance of a 5e order. EPA can issue an order if there's insufficient information to make a safety finding, and you may find and you may see. Uh, Section 21 petitions asking EPA to issue orders. Certainly it would be a lot easier than it was under the old Tosca 
to have that sort of petition granted. And I think most importantly, unless and maybe you probably heard my webinar last month in December, there is, at least in my mind, and in mind of some, an unprecedented interest by environmental groups about all things Tosca. And you have uh, environmental groups are heavily engaged. Uh, you know, as EPA uh, uh, goes about the business of implementing the new Tosca, and as a result, you may well see environmental groups engaging in uh, the Section 21 exercise uh, to a greater extent than they even did under the old Tosca. Next slide. Well, we have the first case uh, post uh, LC uh, Loudbuck Chemical Safety Act, LCSA, uh, and I'm going to turn this over to my colleague Eric Godding. He's going to talk about that case and some of the implications. Well, thanks, Herb, and thanks uh, to everyone who joined us today. Uh, so we have this recent decision in a federal court in California, which uh, we think shows that environmental and consumer groups now view Section 21 as a, a powerful tool and that judges uh, may be willing uh, to give them their day in court. So the case is captioned Food and Water Watch, Inc., the EPA. So in this lawsuit, a group of nonprofits and individuals had filed a Section 21 petition with EPA in November 2016 asking EPA to prohibit, under Section 6A, the purposeful addition of fluoridation chemicals in our drinking water supplies. And so the plaintiffs basically allege that fluoridation uh, presents some uh, various types of neurotoxic risks to humans. So in February 2017, EPA published a Federal Register notice denying the petition. Uh, the denial focused primarily on the studies cited by plaintiffs and criticized those studies on various grounds, but the denial also cited to several alleged procedural shortcomings of the petition under Section 21. Uh, first, EPA claimed that the petitioners did not identify the specific fluoridation chemicals that they were targeting, and so EPA didn't know what to do a rule on. Uh, and then the agency also argued that uh, there was no justification to treat all fluoridation uh, chemicals as a single category for purposes of a Section 6 rule. Uh, second, EPA argued that the amended TOSCA requires all conditions of use for a given chemical to be addressed in the petition, not just the use that the petitioners are interested in, in this case, the fluoridation of drinking water supplies. So in April 2017, the plaintiffs uh, filed their complaint in the United States District Court uh, for the Northern District of, of California, and the complaint sought judicial review of EPA's denial and an order requiring the agency to issue a Section 6A rule banning fluoridation in drinking water supplies. So as Herb mentioned, under Section 21, the plaintiffs must show by a preponderance of the evidence that fluoridation presents an unreasonable risk. And also, significant to the court's review, Section 21 provides that the court is to, re uh, to review the petition de novo. Uh, and so this means that the court makes its own decision regarding the merits of the petition and does not give any deference to EPA's rationale when the agency originally uh, denied the petition. So the standard of review contrasts with the typical uh, standard that we see when courts review agency decisions, which we usually call arbitrary and capricious standard of review, where courts will only overturn the agency decision if it's completely irrational. So on September 25, uh, 2017, EPA filed a motion to dismiss the complaint. Uh, so a motion to dismiss, as many of you know, is filed early in a case and is an attempt by the defendant to get rid of a case before any significant proceedings take place. Uh, typically, a defendant will argue that either the law doesn't recognize the type of relief requested by the plaintiff 
or that the facts alleged in the complaint, even if assumed to be true, do not support the claim. In this case, EPA made the first type of argument and maintained that Section 21, uh, the Section 21 petition did not comply with various procedural requirements set out in TSCA, and therefore was, there was no proper legal claim uh, before the court. And so in particular, EPA made the same procedural arguments that it did in its denial of the petition, namely that the petition failed to identify specific fluoridation chemicals or didn't justify treating them as a category, and also that the petition did not identify and address all conditions of use. Uh, we also note that two nonprofits filed an amicus brief. Uh, an amicus brief, for those of you who don't know, or uh, what we call a front-of-the-court brief, uh, is filed to give the court additional insight into legal arguments or factual context regarding key issues. Uh, in this case, the amicus brief generally supported the plaintiff's legal arguments that a Section 21 petition is not required to address all conditions of use for a chemical and can be limited to just that use that is of interest to the petitioners. Uh, we also note that there were no industry groups or companies who filed an amicus brief. So in December 2017, uh, just last month, uh, the district court denied EPA's motion to dismiss. Uh, as to whether a petition has to address all conditions of use or can be limited, the court spent a lot of time looking at the plain language of Section 6 and Section 21, as well as, as, well as the overall uh, purpose and structure of the statute. The court essentially held that Section 21 requests are completely separate or a completely separate pathway to getting a Section 6A rule when compared to a risk assessment that is done because a chemical has been designated as high priority or a manufacturer requests that a risk assessment be done. So in that sense, while a high priority chemical risk assessment might require that all conditions of use be considered, it doesn't follow that the same holds true for a Section 21 petition. Uh, we also note that the court specifically cited to the amicus brief that was filed by the uh, two nonprofit groups in support of its conclusion that a petition does not need to address all conditions of use. Uh, as to EPA's other arguments, the court found that the petition did identify the three fluoridation chemicals and otherwise justified treating them as one category. So where does this leave uh, the parties? Well, in denying the motion to dismiss, that means that the plaintiffs can now attempt to show the court that there is an unreasonable risk based on the merits. So in other words, the plaintiffs are going to get their day in court and have a judge, not EPA, decide whether an unreasonable risk in fact exists and whether a Section 6A rule is warranted. But there's another interesting dispute that's popped up that's going to be resolved before any hearings on the merits. Uh, I previously mentioned that the court reviews the petition uh, de novo and does not need to defer to EPA's findings when it denied the petition. EPA recently filed a motion with the court to have any proceedings on the merits be limited to the evidence presented in the petition. In other words, EPA wants to prevent plaintiffs from taking additional discovery or introducing additional evidence, like a new study, that was not in the petition or in front of EPA when it made its decision to deny the petition. And so the parties are briefing that issue right now, uh, and that should be resolved in the coming months. Okay. So what are the takeaways uh, from this decision? Well, first, NGOs are now going to view se Section 21, at least in the context of Section 6, as a powerful tool to secure regulation of an existing chemical without going through the more time-consuming prioritization and risk assessment process. They can focus on one or two conditions of use. They can get a Section 6A restrictions in place within just a few years, as opposed to potentially waiting over a decade or more for EPA to focus on a chemical. Uh, they are essentially jumping to the front of the line in terms of priority. 
Second, it may be difficult for EPA to simply get rid of a lawsuit early on through a motion to dismiss. As long as the NGOs have presented a petition to EPA that states some facts in support of the rulemaking, that will be sufficient. So NGOs are likely going to be able to get to the merits or a trial stage of the lawsuit and essentially get their day in court. Uh, third, while the NGOs will have to meet a high burden in the preponderance of the evidence standard, the court will not be limited by EPA's initial findings and rationale when the agency denied the petition. The review is de novo, and the NGOs will essentially get a second bite at the apple before the court. And this will be particularly important where the NGOs draw a potentially sympathetic or a pro-regulatory judge. Uh, fourth, at least with regard to Section 6 petitions, the chances of an unreasonable risk being found where none actually exists may be higher in a Section 21 lawsuit. Here, a judge who may have no experience in chemical regulation, toxicology, concepts of hazard and risk, will be making the decision on whether there is an unreasonable risk. Uh, and in fact, the lawyers for the NGOs in the food and water case were recently quoted in the trade press saying this is the goal, to get uh, this out of EPA and to have a third party take another look at the fluoridation issue. So industry likely faces more uncertainty in a lawsuit uh, than it would in a risk assessment being done by EPA. Uh, fifth, as a result, any company or industry with interest in the chemical issue should consider intervening in the case. Uh, you will need to show under the federal rules either that as a practical matter you need to participate to adequately protect your interest because EPA isn't, or you have a claim or defense as a common question of law or fact with the main lawsuit. And so there are some advantages to being an intervener. You have the same rights as the other parties. Uh, the court is obligated to consider your briefs and arguments. You might be able to appeal if EPA uh, loses and doesn't appeal, and you probably are going to get to uh, participate in oral argument. Uh, the disadvantages, of course, are you have to incur the time and cost of participating, and you lose the efficiencies of having EPA defend on your behalf. Also, the battle we discussed over whether de novo review means that the court is limited to the administrative record or whether the plaintiffs can introduce additional evidence outside the petition uh, may have important implications. Typically, an intervener can introduce its own evidence, but in this case, if EPA is limited to the administrative record, it will only be considering evidence contained in the, in the NGO's petition. So note that there is no notice and comment opportunity for Section 21 petitions aside from EPA's discretion to hold a public hearing. So if interested companies and industry trade associations haven't put anything into the record, then they may be fighting on a playing field that contains only evidence that the NGOs have presented. So this puts a high premium on making sure that companies and industry get into the administrative record before a lawsuit is ever filed. The arguments they think are important before, uh, before that lawsuit uh, proceeds. Of course, if the court allows the NGOs to introduce additional evidence, then an intervener should be allowed to as well. So this is an important issue to monitor going forward. And again, the court is expected to make a decision within the coming months. So finally, even if you aren't able to get anything into the administrative record, companies and industry trade groups should consider filing an amicus brief. You would likely file in support of EPA's denial of the petition. Uh, the advantages here are that you're actually not limited to the administrative record. Uh, amici can uh, make new arguments and they can cite to additional evidence. Uh, you can use the amicus brief to give the court a broader context or cover in more detail issues that EPA isn't. And it's relatively limited in terms of cost and time constraints. The disadvantages are, and the big one, is that a court is not obligated to consider your arguments or additional facts. You aren't a party to the lawsuit, so you don't have the same rights as the parties. 
If EPA loses and doesn't appeal, you have no appeal rights, and it's unlikely you're going to be able to participate in oral argument. But in the end, it is likely that additional nonprofits will file amicus briefs like they did in this case. So the industry should, so industry should consider uh, countering that effort. And again, I'll note that in the food and water case, the court adopted much of the reasoning laid out in the nonprofit amicus brief on the uh, all, uh, all conditions of use issue, and there was no countervailing industry amicus brief uh, filed. Right, thank you, Eric. Very helpful. So that, a couple of things I thought was interesting, and I did want to sort of supplement what you said. It is true that there is no formal notice and comment period uh, in connection with the Section 21 petition, but you're not precluded from sending a letter to EPA, uh, you know, outlining arguments that EPA may find useful in terms of their response to the petition. And, you know, we've done that on behalf of trade associations in the past, and it's a very, very, can be a very, very effective tool. Um, so that's one thing. So you could certainly send a letter in during that 90-day period. You should do it early so that you have, a, a you know, some opportunity to impact or influence EPA's thinking on the matter. Uh, but, you know, to the extent that you could help EPA fashion strong arguments uh, to deny a petition, uh, you should try to do what you can. Uh, I think the second thing is that it is, I think, quite interesting that industry did not file any amicus brief in the fluoridation case, presumably because they're not terribly interested in fluoridation. But I think the main point is these early cases uh, that, that come up under the new TOSCA are really going to set the stage on how this statute is implemented in the future. And there's just, I think, no question uh, that the courts are going to be playing a very, very critical role and important role in how the new task is implemented. We already have three framework, uh, three cases in the Ninth Circuit on the framework rules. Uh, now we have uh, uh, kind of a very, very important case on Section 21, and we'll see more of that. And I think that industry really needs to think hard about engaging. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think you point, uh, Eric pointed out, that allowing a judge to decide whether there are sufficient grounds for a Section 6A rule is probably not the best place to have those decisions made. But on the other hand, when it comes to construing a statute, you know, for example, as whether conditions or use have to include all uses or only some uses, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the courts can do a fairly good job in terms of coming to the right decision. Uh, and the idea of why, well, why do courts do a good job, well, because you usually have a neutral decision maker that's, that's considering the best arguments from both sides. And then they generally can come to, I think, the right decision in that context. Whereas if you're only dealing with the agency, well, you only get their views at the end of the day. And even though I think, uh, even though I think the framework rules are, that, that, that did come out, uh, in July, are sound, legally sound, and I think uh, I think where industry would like them to be, uh, they could always be ro rolled back under another administration. But if we have a court cases in the interim that supports EPA's views, well, then the, and ne the next administration will not be able to roll them back. So I think it's important that industry thinks about engaging in this exercise because the courts are certainly going to be playing a role in deciding how the new TOSCA is implemented, and this period of time is very, very important. So that's our TOSCA 3030 for this month. 183 of you 
held in. I'm really very, very impressed. And we promise that the next task at 3030 on February 14th won't have so much legal ease. Take care, everybody. See you next month.